Hi, this is Steve, Stephen Cap Perry, host of In Good Faith. In the next few weeks, we'll be back with new episodes of In Good Faith, including a fascinating discussion with Brian McLaren, author of the book Faith After Doubt, and an episode with people who began religious communities from scratch because they couldn't find what they needed in the places they were worshiping. This week, though, we're doing something special. We're giving you a preview of Constant Wonder, another great podcast from BYU Radio. In fact, one of my favorites. I think you'll enjoy how host Marcus Smith and his team approach the world we live in with the awe we all have as children, but too often lose as adults. Enjoy! Henry David Thoreau wrote the following. He said, Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. This is the story of a seed so ancient that common wisdom says it shouldn't have had any of that wonder left in it. But the Judean date palm, a variety of tree that had long been extinct on this planet, came back. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. When you live in what is one of the world's most desolate wastelands, where rain almost never falls and the soil is laden with salt, Anything that grows and produces nutritious fruit, well, that is a gift straight from heaven. So in the deserts of Israel, near the Dead Sea, for generation upon generation, the date palm has been revered. It really is a tree of life because, you know, it grows in these intense heat where a lot of things don't grow. The tree itself provides shade. The leaves also provide fodder for uh, camels and whatever. The bark is important. The tree itself, the wood is important. I mean, it's a kind of multi-purpose miracle of nature, the date palm. And the thing is that they like people. So they're either male or they're female. And there in itself, there's a kind of connection to the human condition. The male palm's pollen pollinates the female and the children are the date. The Arava Valley is dry and desolate. Nobody should be living here, in this brutal desert of the Middle East. The fact that anyone does is a tribute to human stubbornness and resilience, just maybe not good sense. To get to the Arava from Jerusalem is a three-hour drive south by car. You pass the Dead Sea on your left and the famous fortress Masada on your right. A little before you reach the Gulf of Aqaba, you come to a community called Kibbutz Keturah. And in the heart of Kibbutz Keturah, stands a stocky palm tree. It's a Judean date palm, a boy actually named Methuselah. The seed that turned into Methuselah originated some 2,000 years ago, harvested from its mother tree, and get this, around the time Jesus was alive. As a dormant seed, Methuselah just waited in the desert those two long millennia until he was found in the 1960s. Finally, in 2005, our guests for this hour undertook a test to see if this old date pit still had any viable hint or germ of something we call life. Somebody's called this approach resurrection genomics, which is a kind of a nice way to put it, a sort of scriptural way to put it. But I think we're trying to preserve life and bring back what was once here. That's Sarah Salone, a natural medicine researcher in Jerusalem, More about her in just a moment. The word date means finger, as in dactyl. Tenery, who is one of our producers at Constant Wonder, tells me she could have lived perfectly well without knowing this anatomical comparison. At any rate, these finger-like fruits have long been a food staple in the Middle East and Mediterranean regions, actually mentioned in the Bible more than 50 times, at least 20 times in the Quran. Scriptural references, you may have heard these, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, that honey is likely a reference to dates. But when we enjoy eating dates today, they're not the ancient Judean cultivar, which lies at the heart of this improbable tale. And just how improbable? Well, we generally assume that anything alive comes with an expiration date. So, if you drop a seed from a piece of fruit, just for convenience, let's make it a date palm pit. And if that pit or seed lands in a desert, and then you wait 2,000 years, would you be startled on the day it bursts into life? Rip Van Winkle hasn't got a thing on Methuselah. 
level, of course, people are fascinated by this story. You know, anything that brings back something from the past, especially something as emotive as the date palm that was so important in ancient Israel, ancient Judea. Sarah Salone is one of the mad scientists behind the plan to germinate extinct Judean date palm seeds that had been recovered at famous archaeological sites adjacent to the Dead Sea. I'm talking about Masada and the Qumran Caves. I say she's a mad scientist. Well, she's not mad at anyone. But the scheme to germinate 2,000-year-old seeds apparently was crazy enough that almost 40 years after they were found, not a single soul had tried. Here's her partner in scientific absurdity, Elaine Soloway. It was just an experiment when I started, but now it seems to have taken on a greater significance to me. It's sort of like the story of Israel, a renewal, bringing back something that was basically made extinct. Methuselah's seed was 39 layers down in an archaeological dig. All the seeds that I have managed to sprout were more or less either buried or from in caves or something like that. And I believe they were protected from moisture. They were protected from radiation. They were protected from many, many things because of where they were found. Who would think that these things would sprout, you know? <laughs> who, who could believe that these seeds would be alive? Soloway is a botanist. And she's in the right place for somebody who, fancy this, actually specializes in getting plants to grow in extremely dry places with bad soil. She is director of the Center for Sustainable Agriculture at Kibbutz Ketura in the Arava Valley. The specific seed that turned into Methuselah was retrieved from what you could call accidental storage in the desert fortress of Masada. You've probably heard of the place. It's where the Judean uprising against the Roman legions took its last stand in the year A.D. 74. We're going to learn more from Sarah Salone and Elaine Soloway about Methuselah's resurrection, along with the resurrection of other ancient date palm seeds. But first, we really ought to get some of the historical backstory. Nearly 2,000 years ago, certain segments of the Jewish population in Jerusalem had revolted against their Roman overlords. And that's never a very good idea with overlords. The Roman legions marched on Jerusalem in A.D. 70. They sacked the city and destroyed the temple there. And then the Romans went about the business of sweeping through the area for any remaining holdouts. And it finally came down to three spots, Herodium, Machairus, and Masada. The last of these three to fall was Masada. And that's where the seed that turned into Methuselah was lying, amongst other seeds intended as food stores for these Judean rebels. Jody Magnus is going to help us here. She is a professor of archaeology at the University of North Carolina, and she's got firsthand extensive experience excavating digs at the Roman siege works at the base of Masada. This Jewish revolt breaks out against the Romans. It lasts for four years until the year 70 AD when the Romans take Jerusalem and destroy the temple on the Temple Mount. And from the Roman point of view, the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, that that marks the end of the revolt. They go back and have their victory parades in Rome and, and celebrate and everything. But there were still three former Herodian fortified palaces holding out against the Romans in the hands of Jewish rebels. And so what the Romans do after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 is to send forces to take these three remaining holdouts, right? It's kind of from their point of view, mopping up operations. And they march first against Herodium, which apparently falls without much of a fight. And then they go to Machairus where there is a siege, but the Jewish rebels there surrendered before the siege ended. And then finally, in either the year 72 or 73 AD, the Romans arrived at the foot of Masada, which at this point is the last holdout, right? It's the last fortress that they haven't taken. It's a mountain that is located by the southwest shore of the Dead Sea. And it is, I think, what you would call in your part of the world a mesa. So it's basically like a tabletop plateau with steep cliffs going around all the sides. And in fact, it was that that made it a natural fortress. And so a couple of thousand years ago, King Herod the Great recognized the potential of the place and and built a fortified palace on top of it. 
the Romans sent a force of somewhere around 8,000 soldiers. A little bit excessive to send such a large force, and it's interesting to consider why they did that. I think that there are two main reasons. One is that the Romans wanted to ensure that they stamped out every last spark of Jewish resistance, because had they simply packed things up and gone home, these rebels could have come down off the mountain and started the revolt up again. So the Romans wanted to make sure they were very thorough, let's stamp out every last spark of resistance. But I think no less important and perhaps more important is the matter of Roman prestige. You know, the Romans governed an empire with a lot of different native peoples. And the last thing that you want is for all those other native peoples living under your rule to look at the example of Masada and think that they can get away with it, right? So, so I think that the Romans also were trying to make an example of Masada and to show that, no, you can't revolt against Rome and get away with it. The siege itself, the Roman siege, did not last three years. I think a lot of people think it lasted three years because it's three years after the fall of Jerusalem. But the Romans only arrived at the foot of Masada three years after the fall of Jerusalem. The siege itself lasted no more than six months maximum, but probably much less, probably only about two months long. Uh, And notice that the Romans come in the winter, the winter spring, and not during the heat of the summer, and that's when they conduct the siege. One of the reasons why the Romans did not try to starve the rebels into surrender, which kind of would have been a logical thing to do, right? But it wasn't possible because when the rebels took over the top of Masada, they found Herod's palaces and storerooms still stocked with food. Huge cisterns that Herod had provisioned on top of the mountain that were supplied by water brought in by aqueduct, literally, were still filled with water. But the Romans at the base of the mountain had exactly the opposite problem. There they are in the middle of nowhere, this very barren area, and they're having to bring supplies in from great distances. So the Romans had to bring this to a swift conclusion, which is why they decided to actively attack the mountain, erecting a siege ramp, an assault ramp, to bring their siege machinery up to the top so that they could actually attack. In 1995, I co-directed excavations with three Israeli colleagues in the siege works at Masada. And we excavated in one of those camps, what's called Camp F. We also cut a section through the ramp, which is still there today. So we cut a section through the ramp to see how it was constructed. And it was fascinating because it turns out that it was constructed of these sort of large stone boxes, if you wish, and they they made kind of stakes out of the wood. And they drove the stakes vertically to make kind of a big wooden box, right? And then those boxes were filled with stones. All the stones are about the size that one man can pick up and carry. And these stone boxes were then kind of like terraced going up towards the top of the mountain. So this powerful military force, the 10th Legion, came, saw, and conquered. That was the basic MO for Romans. After leaving for dead the last holdouts at Masada, the Romans no doubt thought they had performed a thorough route and that any last spark of Jewish identity had been extinguished. you got to remember the defeat of the resistance group at Masada. That was just the final blow in what was a protracted campaign. And the campaign included the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the scattering of Judean Jews all over the Mediterranean world. This was done by forced deportation or enslavement or by driving them out of their homeland by sheer terror, in many instances, probably exterminating them genocidally in what today is sometimes called ethnic cleansing. So these date seeds were tucked away in Masada's food cache at a time when people were just surviving and fighting for their lives against a larger occupying force. It's a David and Goliath story in which Goliath wins. And this food cache at Masada, it wasn't the only one in the region. Masada, that lonely fortress, is at the southern end of the Dead Sea. Closer to Jerusalem at the northern end is another famous historical site, Qumran. And it's here that a body of religious separatists had taken their refuge in caves, and there they stored food, they stored their important religious writings on scrolls. You've almost certainly heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, this is where the two parts of our story, male and female, come together. Remember 
that the date seed that sprouted into Methuselah, our male date palm, it was found at Masada. And the female date palms that Elaine Soloway and Sarah Salone germinated successfully, hoping to partner them with Methuselah, well, these were found near Qumran. To be honest, I, I get a little bit of a haunting feeling when I consider that the community that fled to those caves, whether they and their own physical bodies were slaughtered or deported, whatever tragedy happened, nonetheless, they left behind sacred records which the Romans failed to obliterate and germs of life that the Romans likewise failed to snuff out. As the Romans put down the revolt, they, they subdued different parts of the country. And it was in the year 68 that they came down to the area around Jericho. And that includes Qumran. So Qumran was destroyed by the Romans in 68. Yiga el Yadin, who excavated the top of Masada in the middle of the 1960s, thought that the rebels on top of Masada were joined by members of the group from Qumran, so that when Qumran was destroyed by the Romans in 68, some members of the community there fled south and joined the people who were holding out on top of Masada. There's disagreement among scholars. I happen to think that Yadin was right about that. It's clear that there were different groups of people, and not all of them were necessarily affiliated with anybody. Some of them just could have been random refugees trying to find a safe spot to hide from the Romans. But there certainly were different Jewish groups up there. When it comes to the things we think we know, a healthy skepticism might be useful. You know, consider the source, which in this case are the writings of the contemporary chronicler Josephus. How trustworthy are those writings? We only have one ancient author who tells us what happens at the end of the siege, who actually describes the siege of Masada and tells us what happens at the end. And that ancient author is a guy named Josephus. You mentioned him, Flavius Josephus. He was born in Jerusalem in the year 37 AD. He was from an aristocratic and priestly family. Uh, at the time the Jewish revolt broke out against the Romans, he was put in charge of Galilee. Eventually, he ends up surrendering. He gives himself up to the Romans. He's considered a traitor to the Jewish cause. He then goes over to the Roman side and advises the Romans during the time of the siege of Jerusalem in 70. And eventually, after the revolt ended in 70, he goes to live in Rome and he is commissioned by his Roman patrons, the imperial family, to write a series of history books of the Jewish people. And the first one that he writes is a seven volume account of the Jewish war, which is what is called the Jewish war, the first Jewish revolt against the Romans. And Josephus chooses to end his account of the Jewish war with the story of Masada. He says that at the end of the siege, and he describes you know, what the Romans do during the siege. And he says that at the end of the siege, the Jews committed basically mass suicide. They all got together and they drew lots and they decided that they would kill themselves rather than giving themselves up alive to the Romans. And this is why Masada is so famous, right? Because of this mass suicide story. It's actually technically not a mass suicide. It's a mass homicide in a way because they draw lots and they kill each other and only the last guy kills himself. Scholars have begun to question the reliability of Josephus in general and particularly with regard to the story of the mass suicide. We can actually see in the archaeological remains that there was a Roman siege of the mountain, and the archaeological remains that we have at Masada correlate very well with Josephus's description of the siege. What is in question is how that siege ended. Did all of the Jews on top of the mountain commit mass suicide slash homicide, like Josephus says, or... Uh, is it possible that Josephus fabricated this story, all or in part, in order to make the story more interesting, make it more gripping? This is what scholars are debating. Whether or not the refugees at Masada actually took their own lives, whether or not Josephus got that right, nothing is going to alter the fact that the siege of Masada has become an epic story about heroism against insurmountable odds like Braveheart or Spartacus. What Josephus would never know, that we know, is this. Tucked into the drama is a subplot, irresistible to the imagination of any self-respecting botanist, geneticist, ecologist, agronomist, naturalist, you name it. And this, of course, is the subplot of a surviving, living 
record, a viable seed. In 2005, it was successfully coaxed out of dormancy by Elaine Soloway. The seed that became Methuselah was right there through all the chilling events that Josephus describes. In that date palm seed, you might say, we have a life that was spared. It's important to say the tale cannot be separated from its gruesome aspects. But Methuselah, like Masada itself, serves as a voice against annihilation. These kinds of symbols carry enormous weight in Israel, inspiring not only pilgrimages, but a great influx of tourists as well. Jody Magnus tells me in the early years of the modern state of Israel, Masada carried substantial meaning for Israelis, powerful symbolism, although that has waned a bit in recent decades. So early in the history of the modern state of Israel, Masada really was kind of like a national shrine that symbolized the state of Israel itself as sort of this isolated mountain surrounded by enemies on all sides. And so early in its history, it was really kind of a pilgrimage place for Israelis, particularly Israeli youth, to hike up the mountain. It's still very popular, a very popular visitor site for Israelis, and particularly um, youth groups and, and school kids, school groups. But of course, it's also very popular with tourists, and it's become more popular with tourists over time, that is non-Israeli tourists over time, once the cable car was built. And the construction of the cable car has made it possible for large numbers of non-Israeli tourists who are not necessarily all that young to make it easily to the top and tour. And so, so the popularity of the site in terms of being visited by lots of foreign tourists here has certainly skyrocketed over time. And a lot of those tourists are Jewish tourists. They're not only, of course, but a lot of them are Jewish tourists who come from different parts of the world. And for them, Masada still holds that same kind of like sort of shrine-like pilgrimage status that, that it's kind of lost among a lot of Israelis, you know, since in the last few decades, the sort of rise of post-Zionism and Mossad is no longer considered necessarily a, an emblem of the state of Israel. But I think that for many diaspora Jews, it still retains that, that very special symbolism. There's another power that Masada and this region have, I would say perhaps older and stronger than any symbolism. And this power comes from unique environmental conditions that prevail there that can preserve life like a date seed, by keeping it dry without killing it. Possibly because of the extremely low elevation adjacent to what is, in fact, the lowest point of dry land on Earth. Ironically, the shoreline of the Dead Sea. In most parts of the world, the climate and the um, environment is simply too moist to allow for the preservation of perishable materials, organic materials or perishable materials like food, right? In most cases, you don't find this sort of thing. One exceptional circumstance where you'll sometimes find organic materials preserved is when you have what are called anaerobic conditions, conditions where you don't have oxygen. And so if you think of the bogs in Scandinavia, for example, and the bog people there where they still have like the hair on them and everything, right? Um, and sometimes they find like uh, leather sandals and things still in the bogs. Those are preserved precisely because they were in mud that had no oxygen, and so they didn't disintegrate. What we have is a different condition, and that is where you have very arid conditions, right? So where there's very little or no moisture in the environment, therefore these kinds of organic materials or perishable items are preserved. The best uh, example of this sort of thing is Egypt. Why is Egypt so rich in so many fantastic antiquities? And it's precisely because the conditions there preserved all of these materials that you don't usually find in, in other parts of the world. So, you know, Israel overall is, I know we don't, we think of it as a desert, but but it's not, it, it, most of the country doesn't have, you know, those really arid conditions where you get these kinds of things preserved. So that's what's exceptional about Masada. I will also mention that you see the same thing just a little further north along the western shore of the Dead Sea at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, right? So the Dead Sea Scrolls were preserved precisely because of these same arid conditions. It turns out that Methuselah's family, the cultivar we call the Judean date palm, 
was also a casualty of the Roman campaign against the Jews, and here's how to connect those dots. Even since ancient times, date palms have required human cultivators to survive. And in extirpating the Jewish people from Judea, the Romans removed the humans who propagated them. Until Elaine Soloway succeeded with her experiment, the Judean date palm was deemed extinct. If you wanted to see such a tree, the only place to look for one was an ancient artwork on an ancient shekel or a Roman coin. Sarah Salone explains how cultivation of the Judean date palm gradually came to an end after the first century and why the end of cultivation spelled the end of the palm itself. The modern date palm has been cultivated for thousands of years. So what was the original, original wild date palm is very difficult to say. Recent research shows that it may have originated in Oman. But the cultivated date palm, which has been cultivated for millennia, okay, had to be very carefully looked after. Male pollen was used to pollinate high-quality females who produce wonderful dates. They would take offshoots from these females and plant them out, and they'd be exact copies of the mother, and they would be pollinated and produce the same wonderful dates. It was a process that went on for hundreds of years, and it required what we would call agricultural continuity. You really had to look after these date plantations, okay? What happened in Judea in the first century was a total and absolute cataclysmic war with the Romans, which over the next one or 200 years essentially denuded the date plantations, which were down by the Dead Sea and around Jericho, of the people who had typically looked after these date plantations. And then successive waves of conquest and invasion and conquest and invasion by the 10th, 11th century, uh, there's almost nothing left. And, and the early travelers of the modern period from the 17th, 18th century, they would say, well, there's a few date palms in Jericho and they produce a very low quality date that's only fit to be given to animals. But these magnificent plantations that are talked about by the classical writers like Pliny and Strabo and Galen, all these people from the 3rd or 4th century BC right through into the Byzantine period talked about these magnificent plantations that stretched all the way along the Jordan Valley, right the way along to the southern tip of the Dead Sea, they'd all vanished. They'd all vanished because there was a loss of this agricultural continuity. Essentially, you know, uh, the Jewish people lost their commonwealth. And with the successive invasions, that continuity of date plantation was gone. Prehistoric humans intervene in a plant's natural growth cycle. The humans select for high-quality fruit. The plant becomes dependent on this ongoing human intervention for its survival. Human warfare intervenes to wipe it out of existence. And who'd have thunk that this particular plant's story could have a new chapter of botanical intervention? Well, apparently nobody except Salone and Soloway. The great thing about Elaine is that she'll always have a go. There's no such thing with Elena's, I can't do this, or, oh, that's ridiculous, and, you know, I mean, when I approached the archaeologists for the seeds, the first thing they said is, you're mad, you're crazy, who can, who can grow ancient seeds? But then who had tried? Whereas Elaine just said, oh, I'll have a go at that, yeah, I mean, Elaine's always ready to have a go, which is so wonderful about our partnership over all these years, is that she's all ready to have a go, and I'm always ready to try something different. It was her idea to start this project. She was inspired by reading about a lotus seed that was sprouted in California that was 1,500 years old. And she said to herself, well, why can't we do that with our seeds? She actually asked me whether I thought I could sprout them. And I had no idea that I could. But I said I was willing to try. I had a lot of projects at that time, and this was just another experiment. Were there any little tricks you used to wake them up and, you know, to coax them along? I treated them with gibberellic acid. I also treated them with enzymatic fertilizer, a fertilizer made out of seaweed, actually, to encourage both the shoot and the root. And the thing is, I wasn't really expecting much to happen. I used to walk in every day, look and make sure that nothing had sprouted and check them off. And then one came up and 
I was astonished. I like to think it was no fluke that Elaine Soloway should ever have left California to pursue a profession. Over 40 years ago, this took her to Israel. When she first gets off the bus at Kibbutz Keturah, Elaine took one look and immediately exclaimed, what can you grow around here? And for the most part, she had it right. Many things will not grow there, but some will, with hard work, ingenuity, and a whole lot of patience. I've tried about 500 different kinds of plants. I've only found 10 that were really, really promising. I really do think that you have to make your crop fit the area rather than the area fit the crop. Because ch changing the entire character of an area is too difficult for, for humanity, I would say. You just have to be careful about what you plant. Let's put it that way. Some things, just look at this place and literally curl up and die, like kiwis, for instance. <laughs> I was never able to keep them alive for more than a few weeks. But there are plants which do thrive in the desert. And you have to find them. The lack of water is, is only one problem, I would say. Uh, desert soils are eroded soils. And you really have to turn sand and other not nice materials into real soil before you can grow anything in them. So learning desert agriculture is a little bit of everything. It's a little bit of soil science. It's a little bit of hydrology. It's a little bit of choosing your crops as well, because not everything will grow in the desert. As I have become acquainted with soil science and the idea of creating soils where they have been depleted or eroded, I've come across kind of this chicken and egg thing where you need the plants to make the soil, but you need the soil to make the plants. That's also true. You can plant cover crops to build up soil, and you can also plant what we call a mitigating crop, which actually in our case, I was using weeds to pull boron up out of the soil because we had too much boron. So I would plant these particular weeds. They're like a tumbleweed. They would take out the boron for a couple of years and I could uh, feed them to, to horses or cattle. You meet someone like Soloway and it's a sure bet she's thinking about the whole picture. I mean, it's fine and all to germinate a seed, but do you have a place for that seed to sink its roots? All of her desert plantings, Methuselah included, eventually need a home in soil. I want to know a, a little bit now about Methuselah's condition today, because if this happened in 2005, we're approaching a couple of decades since then. I mean, this is an older tree now. Well, he's a big guy now, really, and he has a lot of, of offshoots, which are his own clones that he grows by himself. A male day tree has male clones, and a female day tree has female clones. He's been planted right outside my office where I can see him. The other dates are quite close by. They're in a sort of a compound, but the others are, are already planted. Udit, uh, is our youngest female. Hannah is the female who's given dates twice. It's not an easy thing to determine the sex of a baby chicken. But with newly hatched date palms, well, it seems there's no telling until they're old enough to flower, which is pretty far down the road. So they guessed. And there's no way to blame them if they happen to guess wrong more often than not. Sarah Salone. There was a Jeremiah originally that I thought was a male, and he turned out to be female, so I called him Hannah, because my mother was Hannah. <laughs> but with the others, also from Matsada was Adam. Adam was originally Eve, because she came up just before our Jewish New Year. It's a celebration of the new year, the creation of the world, the story of Adam and Eve and all that. So I called her Eve, but it turned out to be male. So we changed Eve's name to Adam. Boaz came up with Ruth, and they came up before the festival of Shavuot, which you call Pentecost. And you read the story of Ruth and Boaz on Shavuot. Uh, Boaz stayed Boaz, but Ruth turned out to be male. So I rechristened him Uriel, who's my son. 
Judith was originally Judah because he came up oh, before Hanukkah, which is the story of the Maccabees, Judah the Maccabee, and Judah turned out to be female, so I went from Judah to Judith. And Jonah, Elaine just liked the name. I think our total was about 32 altogether, and we got seven came up. Now, if you want to try a recently harvested date produced from a truly ancient plant, there's only one place to go, and that's to Kibbutz Keturah, and these dates are in extremely limited supply. So these Judean dates, they taste very nice. They have certain qualities. They kind of have a nice, very nice honey after flavor, and they're not desperately sweet. They're also kind of dry as well. They're very nice. I mean, most people we gave them to said, oh, these are lovely. Only one person spat it out and said, oh, I don't like this. But that was, she was an exception. <laughs> <laughs> They're very nice to taste, but we haven't yet got round. We're trying to now compare their biochemistry with modern dates. So it's a lot of work. Well, these dates are very interesting, the ones that I managed to sprout. They have a lot of what's known as Cretan DNA from a, a variety of a date that grew in Crete. And they have a lot more of this material in them than the modern ones. They're kind of blondish looking dates. You know, dates come in many colors from red to black. And these are kind of blondish dates. And they taste like honey. I, they're, very, they're very nice, actually. I believe we could revive the variety of the Judean date, which was actually quite famous because it was considered the best date in the known world in the old days. Also, I must say that I have never been able to sprout any ancient seed that wasn't from the Dead Sea area. There's something about that area which is special, I would say, as far as seed longevity goes. Methuselah's seed was 39 layers down in an archaeological dig. All the seeds that I have managed to sprout were more or less either buried or from in caves or something like that. And I believe they were protected from moisture. They were protected from radiation. They were protected from many, many things because of where they were found. Seeds have this extraordinary potential for dormancy. Plant biologists don't really understand how seeds can remain dormant, not for months or years, but for tens of years, for hundreds of years, for thousands of years. This is something unknown, but I do think that in the case of our seeds that we germinated, that it had much to do not only with the seed itself, uh, the date seeds have a very thick shell which sort of protects the inner embryo, but also that the particular environmental conditions of the Dead Sea may have contributed uh, to their longevity. You know, when things are damp, seeds disintegrate. That's one thing. So the Dead Sea is very, very dry, very arid, with very low humidity, number one. Number two, this extraordinary unique position of being the lowest place on Earth, minus 400 plus meters below sea level. And we know from studies carried out by geophysicists that the Dead Sea is different from ultraviolet at sea level. It kind of bends. That's why people down in the Dead Sea don't get burnt by the sun, because the ultraviolet is attenuated. And I kind of postulated that perhaps, I mean, ultraviolet is cosmic radiation and Cosmic radiation causes in seeds the generation of free radicals, which essentially is what harms the seeds and causes them eventually to disintegrate. And because the cosmic radiation is weird down at the Dead Sea, the sort of attenuation of ultraviolet may have prevented this generation of free radicals, which is harmful. So you have also the kind of unique atmospheric pressures down at the Dead Sea there pressures and the radiation. And then you have all these chemicals, a kind of chemical haze floating above the Dead Sea because of all the minerals and compounds dissolved in the Dead Sea. And whether that had any effect, we don't know. We don't know. But I do think the Dead Sea's unique climate and environment could have contributed. Just think about what the Romans never knew about ultraviolet radiation, air pressure, 
aridity, seed viability, all those things. And then think about the symbolic power of this resurrected plant, given that the vast Roman Empire is no more. It's a little bit of payback, maybe. I harp back again to these difficult times that we live in and the extinction of so many species and climate change and environmental degradation and yet nature still has a trick up her sleeve, you know. She still has a few tricks and this extraordinary resilience in that seeds can live on for thousands of years is I think amazing, just incredible and makes me in awe of the powers of nature. Thanks to Dr. Sarah Salone, a physician and founder of the Natural Medicine Research Center of the Hadassah Medical Organization in Jerusalem, to Elaine Soloway, director of the Center for Sustainable Agriculture at Kibbutz Ketura, and to archaeologist Jody Magnus of the University of North Carolina, author of Masada, From Jewish Revolt to Modern Myth. listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. We've spent this hour with the story of some miraculous date seeds that survived near the Dead Sea for over 2,000 years. We're going to finish off the episode with an odd ancient culinary discovery. We're talking about prehistoric chewing gum. To get this story, Marcus Smith spoke with Hannes Schroeder, a professor of ancient genomics at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. What is the status of this piece of gum that we're going to talk about now? I understand a name has been given to the chewer. We call her now Lola. Give us a little bit of background uh, on, on how this was found, where it was found, and why Lola seems to be of any importance. Right. So, so yeah, she, she was dubbed Lola. Um, when you mentioned in your introduction that um, we managed to recover uh, uh, you know, DNA from this ancient gum and were able to uh, reconstruct the person based on the based on the DNA, and she was dubbed Lola because this, this gum was found on an island in southern Denmark, which is called Lollat. And so the people who uh, found the gum, you know, thought it would be it'd be, it'd be fun to, to to give her that name. So that's where the name comes from. And well, it turns out that that um, these ancient chewing gums are an amazing source of ancient human DNA, and actually not only. Uh, human DNA, as, as we've shown, but also microbial DNA. So, like you said, the idea is that you know, as as you chew on this gum, cells from the mouth and uh, you know, micro, microbes and so on and so forth are are being incorporated into into this material, and then that's why they're preserved. And, and we managed to kind of work backwards and, and extract the DNA from one of those specimens and reconstruct an entire ancient human genome, um, and also recover this microbial DNA. Now, there was some kind of construction going on, a tunnel, I understand, where the gum was found. And we also ought to talk about the nature of this gum. It's not the kind of gum we chew today. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. So it's not the white, um, you know, colored substance that we, that we know as, as gum today. So, so this ancient gum um, was actually uh, birch pitch as we call it. So this is a kind of black-brown substance, um, doesn't you know, look particularly appealing. Um, and it's, 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 um, it's obtained by, by um, heating birch bark. Um, and then you uh, get this bit pitch or, or, or tar. Uh, and then, uh, well, the idea is that people in the past used to chew this um, in order to then use it for hafting stone tools, um, but also other uses have been suggested, like, um, you know, this gum, it's it, it thought that it ha has actually antibacterial or aseptic properties, so people have suggested that maybe it was chewed to alleviate toothache and, and other ailments. Um, and others have suggested that, well, maybe, you know, it was actually just chewed as today, as a, as a form of, you know, just, just for fun, essentially, or maybe even... Uh, perhaps for uh, suppressing hunger. Now, you used the phrase hafting stone tools. Uh, elaborate on that. 
Right, maybe that's something familiar to the archaeologists among you. So, so halfing stone tools, essentially, you know, you're, you're, you're probably, uh, your listeners will know kind of like stone tools, flake stone tools. Well, in, in, in the Stone Age, they used to uh, fix these tools. Imagine a, an arrowhead, for instance, on an arrow shaft. In order to do that, or, you know, a, a, a bigger stone tool on a wooden handle, for example, in order to fix that, and that's called hafting, you would, you would use this material kind of like a... Um, all-purpose glue almost, I guess. Talk a little bit more about Lola. I understand that uh, she, if you were to put her side by side next to a modern Scandinavian, she might not resemble a Scandinavian at all. Right. She would She would stand out uh, a little bit up here in, in, in Scandinavia. So, she, yeah, it turns out that um, from from what we know, we, you know, we know we were able to recover her genome. We, can, we could reconstruct um, specific physical traits, so what we call phenotypes, so things like hair color and eye color and, and also skin color. And it turns out that she had this really striking combination of dark skin and dark brown hair and, and blue eyes. And actually, this is a combination of, of traits that was evidently very common in the Stone Age in Europe. And that's, so there are other ancient genomes that we sequence. For instance, Cheddar Man is a, is a, is a famous example from, from, uh, from the UK, but also there's a, an ancient genome um, that's quite a bit older from Spain, from a site called Labrania, and they also have these, these, you know, this combination of physical traits: dark skin, dark brown hair, and blue eyes. And that's interesting because it, it tells us something about, we believe anyway, the evolution of lighter skin tones in in northern Europe. So the idea is that um, the lighter skin tones that are dominant in the indigenous population anyway of Europe nowadays that that only evolved um, later on in, in Europe's history. Now. Through this DNA testing of material left in the chewing gum, you've been able to ascertain certain traits that Lola had. Compare that with what you might discover if you had her skeletal remains. What could you learn from the skeletal remains that you can't learn from the DNA or vice versa? Right. I mean, of course, in in this case, um, there are actually no um, human remains from, from from this particular site, as far as I know. So this was really the only way that we could get closer to these people. Well, if you have a skeleton, of course, you can, you can um, if you have the right skeletal elements anyway, um, uh, you can determine um, the sex of the individual, you can look at, um, you know, the age as well. But of course, just based on, on skeletal remains, um, you won't be able to say much about these other physical traits that we were able to, to recover. But here, you know, like I said, there are no human remains from the site. So this was really the only way that we could, could get any information on these people. So from a skeleton, you can deduce age. Yeah, absolutely. If you have, you know, if you have a complete skeleton, um, or even you know the right parts, let's say, you can determine the age, age of death, as we call it. And of course, also using radiocarbon dating and such, you can determine the, the you know, the direct, um, uh, the absolute age of the of the skeleton. Well, Dr. Schroeder, apart from the fact that there's this Lola, the the single individual, there are things through this uh, genetic research that you're able to deduce that if she's representative of a large population of people, perhaps you can. What can you find through through that kind of an approach? Yeah, absolutely, good good question. And and well, ancient human genomes, you know, are uh, in, in that sense of an amazing source of of information regarding population history. So uh, in this particular case, we, we, for example, found that she appears to be, you know, much more closely related to other hunter-gatherers from the continent than, you know, hunter-gatherers who live just a few hundred kilometers to the north in central Scandinavia based on, based on her genome. And that tells us something about how uh, this part of northern Europe was probably first settled by humans, you know, probably from the continent. And that's super exciting. And on, on top of this, um, we got a date for this genome, for, for this gum, of about 5,700 years before present. And that's interesting because it's just about the time when in Europe, uh, or in that part of Europe anyway, um, farming and agriculture starts to arise. So this is a massive change in culture change in Europe at the time when we went from essentially hunting and gathering to, to farming. Um, and so at, at that particular point in time, again, just perhaps a few hundred kilometers to the south in this case, there were farming communities, you know, people subsisting on farming uh, already established. But her genome looks completely like that of hunter-gatherers who lived in Europe for the last 
5,000 years before then. And so that tells us something about perhaps the impact of this, this, uh, this cultural change, the arrival of farming in Europe, and, and might suggest that perhaps there were pockets of hunter-gatherers that survived in parts of uh, Europe, particularly here in this case Northern Europe, into what we call the early Neolithic, so the time when farming was already underway in, 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 in other parts of Europe. I think I hear you telling me that if you were to accumulate sufficient numbers of samples, you could start putting together a map of where different peoples and ethnicities were in, in certain locations, maybe even trying to trace migrations? Absolutely. That's, I mean, that's, that's basically what we're doing in this field of ancient genomics. And, well, if your listeners are interested um, in this, you can check out a resource website that we that we just started is www.ancientgenomes.com and you can yourself explore this world of ancient genomes we've got up until now probably you know just over 3000 ancient genomes uh, and the data points there and you can see how the genetic landscape how the genetics of people changed in the last 10 15000 years and how that relates to the big cultural changes that happened at the time. Now, studying this little wad of chewing gum has resulted in uh, findings that are not necessarily specific to the human species. I understand that just by virtue, and you mentioned this a little earlier, uh, the microbes in the chewing gum. Where does the science go if you're not focusing on the human DNA, but looking at maybe bacteria or a virus or something? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. It's a super exciting field. So the the ability not only to get human DNA, but also to get DNA from the microbes that essentially you know coexisted with us um, for for the last ten twenty thousand years and even longer. Uh, so in this case, we were able to extract or reconstruct essentially an entire oral microbiome. So so mainly oral taxa, so oral species, bacteria, and, and also actually a virus that we pulled out. Um, and that's extremely interesting because it tells us something about um, how our ancestral oral microbiome, so our oral microbes looked like, what they looked like 6,000 years ago, and how they evolved in the, in the last 6,000 years. And, and to be able to do that is, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just amazing. So conceivably, if an individual were suffering from dis- some disease, you know, uh, measles or polio, you could maybe compare ancient measles with modern measles? Absolutely. That's, I mean, in essence, that's, that's the idea. So, so you have ancient strains, and you can compare them to modern ones, and you can see how uh, they evolved and how they spread, and perhaps also draw inferences um, with regards to their virulence, so you know why was a particular pathogen so uh, you know had such a such a massive impact at a particular point in time, um, and and also study what we call host um, pathogen interaction. So how, you know there are certain pathogens or microbes that we um, coexisted with and that lived happily. Uh, that we live quite happily with, but there are others that at certain points in time can become really nasty and become major killers in a human population. So, um, yeah, from that point of view, to be able to have that additional source now of information is, is, um, is very interesting. Marcus Smith there speaking with Hannes Schroeder, a professor of ancient genomics at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. I'm Tenery Taylor. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Constant Wonder, another great podcast from BYU Radio. Subscribe to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. Watch for brand new episodes of In Good Faith beginning next Sunday. And if you're on Facebook, why not click like on the In Good Faith Facebook page where you can comment on episodes.